are listening to The Addiction Files, where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources, while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are The Addiction Doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. Welcome to this episode of The Addiction Files. We are back with another fantastic episode. We are talking about the abuse of a common medication, gabapentin. This is another listener request episode. So thank you for your questions and keep them coming and we will get to them, we promise. Little bit of history on gabapentin. This actually, I was a little bit surprised this was first approved in 1993, and I, I could have sworn this was an older medication. Did you know that, Paula? No, I didn't, but yeah, 93. So it's, it's a fair age, though, at this point. Hey, nearly 30 years old. Approved in 1993, and it's been available as a generic medication in the U.S. since 2004. It's had a little bit of a torrid history. During the 90s, there was a number of lawsuits and related to the illegal techniques used to encourage physicians to prescribe gabapentin for unapproved uses. So typically what this is used for was it's initially was approved for as an, an adjunct for treatment of partial seizures, post-herpatic neuropathy, what we commonly know was peripheral diabetic neuropathy, but these many common off-label and what we've even talked about on our podcast was alcohol withdrawal. Then you will see common uses in insomnia, anxiety, bipolar, migraine, fibromyalgia, very common off-label uses. You know, those categories you just listed, like general pain, insomnia, and anxiety, just those three categories alone land it one of the most, as one of the most prescribed medications in, in the U.S. What we found is that 83 to 95 per- 95% of the prescriptions were considered off-label use. And that's where Pfizer paid out a $420 million fine in 2004 for its off-label promotion. The only reason we start with that history is this is where you get into how many studies were done on its safety, habit-forming potential. And it's taken 30 years for us to go back and say, hey, wait a minute, this drug was released, told it's safe, wasn't scheduled. And now state to state, it's coming into that maybe this should be reported to PMDPs and have it be classified as a controlled substance. Its prescriptions obviously doubled from 2004 to two, to 2019, and it was the sixth most prescribed drug nationally in 2021. I found that really interesting. Yeah, that's huge. And I, again, I think it's hugely utilized for neuropathy and neuropathic pain and then some of those other off-label indications. Yeah, by 2019, we were looking at about 45 million prescriptions. Just this is gabapentin alone. Very popular and no wonder why we're getting into some of these problems. When we get into kind of the mechanism of action, I think it'll make a little bit more sense. So let's do some of the epidemiology. We'll talk and then we'll talk about the mechanism of action. And what do you do when you have a patient who has a dependency or abuse situation with gabapentin? Right. And I think it's important to note that gabapentin is a very useful drug for many people. It does hold many risks, like Darlene just said, and especially has a 
a risk for addiction and abuse in a certain population, and we're going to talk about that. We're not blacklisting gabapentin by any means, but we wanted to just talk about the risk of gabapentin and go over this unusual kind of co-occurrence with opioid overdose deaths and the risk with opioids and how we can reduce that risk. Let's look at some of the research around gabapentin, especially as it relates to opioid use and overdose deaths. So if we go to a JAMA article just released in 2022, we is the main author is Kuhn at all. They revealed that toxicology tests for a group of 5,687 overdose deaths investigated between the time of 2019 and 2020 revealed that 10% of all those cases with test results available had gabapentin detected in the toxicology. So that's a fairly good sample size. And it was saying 10% of all overdose deaths had gabapentin involved. Now, the overdose deaths in which gabapentin was detected doubled from the very beginning of 2019 to the second quarter of 2020. So it was on a steep escalation. And we found that most of the cases where gabapentin was involved in the overdose death, so were opioids. So 90% of the cases which involved gabapentin also involved opioids. Those two go hand in hand. Primarily, most recently, 2019-2020, the main opioid implicated is the um, fentanyl. So illicitly manufactured fentanyl, not prescribed or prescription fentanyl. You know, I think that's really interesting that um, that this is what's been happening, that we see this combination of gabapentin and opioid responsible for a lot of overdose deaths. By itself, we don't see gabapentin implicated as an overdose drug. Uh, what we found is, too, there was, well, there was a very interesting release from the CDC. You know how they do these kind of updates. They did an update, just barely, actually. I'm trying to see the date on it, my, my older eyes. May 13th, 2022. They released an update titled Notes from the field, trends in gabapentin detection and involvement in drug overdose deaths. They reviewed data from 23 states and the District of Columbia from 2019 and 2020. And the release from the study, which was authored by Matson et al., uh, basically said that in 2019, 69 million gabapentin prescriptions were dispensed. And even though gabapentin is considered a safe medication and not associated with overdose on its own, in combination, it has significant risk. They looked at data on nearly 63,000 overdose deaths. So a much bigger number than the JAMA study. The exact number was 62,652. They looked at that number of overdose deaths over the period of 2019 and 2020 in those jurisdictions amongst those which had documented toxicology results, which was about 58,000. A total of 9.7 had gabapentin detected on post-mortem toxicology. So it was actually very similar to the JAMA study, just a bigger sample size. They say that gabapentin-involved deaths occurred in 52.3% of those with, with a positive opioid test result, which is very interesting. So if, if you step aside and you just listen to that statistic, 52.3% of opioid overdose deaths in 58,000 people had gabapentin in their system. That's really shocking. And I think as prescribers, we need to we need to listen to that. I remember clearly, personally, when I heard the first statistic regarding gabapentin-involved opioid overdose deaths, it was from a really respected addiction psychiatrist in Utah. She is the medical director of a 
publicly run OTP. And she was the one who was telling me, or, you know, she was educating her staff and educating um, us in the field that gabapentin was really on the rise and was being implicated in these postmortem studies. I was just shocked at that because we were using at the time, especially in the field of withdrawal management for substance use, especially alcohol and even opioids, we were using gabapentin for everything. It's such a great option for people in terms of withdrawal from alcohol or benzos, cravings, sleep, anxiety, pain. It's like, you know, list it on your hand, all the things that it can help someone with. And then to hear that it's implicated in, in as many as 52.3% of opioid overdose deaths, it really needs to have a stop and pause, right? Absolutely. Um, yeah. So the CDC also, this study also identifies the demographics of the folks who are most likely to have gabapentin associated with their opioid in a fatal overdose. And it's nearly always the same. It's typically non-Hispanic white people, about 83% of the time. And if 52% of the time, it's people aged 35 to 54, but it's about equal between men and women. So, you know, it's mostly... Well, and I think those statistics are important to point out because the scabapentin is typically, if you look, it's prescribed. There is illicitly obtained, but this isn't like what we're seeing as manufactured. This is prescription gabapentin that's being either right. prescribed directly from the provider or distributed. Does that make yes, sense? Yes, exactly. And you know, gabapentin, well, we'll talk about this in a little bit when we just talk about gabapentin in general, but it's easily prescribed because it's not controlled. And so I think as prescribers, we think, well, this is a great option, right? So we're keen to give it out. I think we often give it to folks who have chronic pain, especially neuropathic pain conditions, chronic low back pain, failed back pain syndrome, etc. And folks with opioid use disorder, overlay of pain and addiction is more typical than not typical. And so we're commonly treating pain in those folks. It's also diverted. I mean, gabapentin is highly desirable in certain populations, especially in prison populations. In fact, I think we have a statistics from Dr. Edwin um, Sasset's talk that it's the second most desirable drug in incarcerated people in terms of diversion. That may have changed over the past couple of years, but it is a highly desirable and diverted drug. But you're absolutely right. Most of this is coming directly from our offices, from our clinics, from our hospitals. It's definitely concerning. And you know, like we said before, it's it, it's not that it's incredibly dangerous solely by itself. That's why we don't see people who just take gabapentin for it, you know, by itself have run into trouble. Although at super therapeutic doses, people can run into significant adverse effects with opioids, either prescribed or illicit, such as heroin or illicitly manufactured fentanyls, we can run into big problems. And the CDC goes on to say that nearly 90 percent of drug overdose deaths in which gabapentin was detected, also detected, um, also involved in opioids. So they nearly always go hand in hand. One of the problems with this data, though, and we have to talk about this, Darlene, is gabapentin testing is not a typical part of routine drug testing. Like, do you test for gabapentin in your clinic? We don't. And in terms of postmortem toxicology results, some uh, labs 
do mandatory testing for gabapentin on post-mortem toxicology, but some um, labs do not, and it's not uniformly required. Some of this data may be underestimated because it's just not being tested for. Same thing in our clinics. We're not doing point-of-care testing for gabapentin. I've We've done send-out labs for sure for gabapentin, and, for, and we've done quantitative levels for people who were kind of monitoring, but it's not typically watched, right? Yes. Well, let's talk up a little bit about the com- So we know about the risk of gabapentin and opioids in terms of overdose deaths, right? We have some pretty scary statistics. What is the story with co-prescribing? How often are gabapentin and opioids co-prescribed? And what do we know about that? From that same report, the notes from the field, it showed co-prescribing with gabapentin and opiates, the likelihood of an opiate-related death was 49% higher compared to just opiates alone. Approximately 8% of patients from the study were receiving opiates were co-prescribed gabapentin. Yeah, so that's that's the interesting statistic right there. And I don't know how much that's changed because this was 97 to 2013. I, I would guess that that has increased since then, wouldn't you say? Certainly. At the time, that put them at a 50% increase in death probability if you had a co-prescription of an opiate and gabapentin. And I see this all the time. Patients will come to, you know, even our patients, if they're going to a pain clinic, they're on opiates and gabapentin. The last thing that they found, and this was between the United States and the United Kingdom, they found 15 to 22% of people with an opiate use disorder are misusing their gabapentin. That's what's important to also note is we see similar rates of abuse with other substances. So if you look at like alcohol, commonly available substances, you have similar prevalence. I thought that was an interesting. So yeah, that's very interesting. So we've got misuse in the population with substance use disorders, specifically opioid use disorders, about 15% in that study. There's been some other studies that have shown that it may even be higher than that. I made reference to a presentation by Dr. Edwin Salsitz earlier in the podcast. This is a doctor from Mount Sinai, Beth Israel. He gives an amazing talk. He It's been given, I think he gave it at several of the national conferences, and then it's actually available as a webinar online through ASAM, the American Society of Addiction Medicine. He gives a really great great talk on gabapentinoids in general. And he says in his presentation that the incidence of, you know, misuse of gabapentin in people with opioid use disorder with medication-assisted treatments such as methadone could be even as high as 65%. So that's interesting. Now, compare that to the general population where misuse of gabapentin is probably around 1%. So it's much, much, much lower. And then we've got a statistic from a bit of an older study back in 2013 that about 8% of opioids are co-prescribed with gabapentin. So putting people at significant risk of overdose death just because of the combined CNS effect. Let's talk a little bit about gabapentin as a drug. Why is it such an interesting drug and why does it have this risk not only for overuse and abuse, especially with our folks with opioid use disorder, but and then also why does it contribute significantly to opioid overdose deaths? It is a low lipophilic drug and it has a Cmax of about three to four hours. It has zero order kinetics, right? And it's by Bioavailable at lower, do- much more bioavailable at lower doses than higher doses, which is kind of interesting. Uh, the bioavailability of a 900 milligram total daily dose is 
60%. And if you go up to 3,600 milligrams, the bioavailability drops to 33%, which I think is interesting when you have folks who really try and super dose or who think that they need higher doses. It, it just doesn't get absorbed beyond a certain point. It has have a half-life peaks, like I said, around three to four hours. It has a half-life of about five to seven hours. There is an extended release formulation. I don't I don't think I've ever prescribed it because I think it's still trade, right? Have you ever prescribed it, Darlene? I may have, but not in many years. Yeah, yeah. I don't see it used very often. I mean, that's typically no. why gabapentin is dosed TID or QID is because it has a peak effect in a few hours and a half-life of about five to seven hours. It takes about 24 to 48 hours to reach steady state. So folks who are using it therapeutically for neuropathic pain or alcohol withdrawal syndrome, it does take a little while to kick in. It does have nice um, metabolism. It's not metabolized through the hepatic system. It is metabolized through the renal system. So we don't have to make any hepatic pharmacokinetic dose adjustments because it's not a CYP inducer. It We don't have a lot of drug-to-drug interactions. So that's really nice. But we do have to remember to renally dose it. And I have to admit, I've had several calls from the pharmacy saying, uh, this person has a creatinine clearance of less than 30. Would you please renally dose? Um, their gabapentin. (laughs) One of the interesting and very important things to know about gabapentin, and if there's one of two or three things you take away from this podcast, it's that it increases the absorption of opioids and opioids increase the absorption of gabapentin. This is probably why it's so dangerous is it decreases small bowel motility. So do opioids and they potentiate each other's absorption. So it's kind of like a compounding problem, right? You have CNS depressant effects from both drugs, both drug classes, but you also have increased absorption in the presence of each drug. And a dose dose escalation and effective, you're increasing their dose. Thank you for summarizing that for me. So we call that a potentiator, right? Gabapentin potentiates opioids and vice versa. This is why gabapentin is particularly popular amongst people who are on methadone maintenance because it potentiates their methadone and also people who use heroin or other opioids. Now, something interesting to know is this is not the case with pregabalin or Lyrica. For some reason, the pharmacokinetics and the absorption of pregabalin is not the same and it does not potentiate, is not potentiated by the co-use of opioids. So if anything, if you're going to co-prescribe, and I guess I'm going out on a limb here and I'm not telling you how to prescribe medications or how to practice medicine, but it is possible to consider that pregabalin is safer in combination with opioids than gabapentin is for this reason. Metabolism, we already talked about. We'll talk about mechanism of action a little bit. So it has a high affinity binding to a a voltage-gated calcium channel in the CNS and in peripheral nerve tissue. This is why it has CNS depressant effects and also acts on peripheral nerves. It's why it's helpful for peripheral neuropathy. It decreases excitatory neurotransmitter release. That's, of course, what we want, right? We want to decrease messaging back to the CNS, and therefore it helps with pain. It also acts like a chemical 
analog of GABA, but it doesn't act at GABA-A or GABA-B. So you'll remember from our previous podcasts on benzos and phenobarbital, and we also did one on phenobut. Actually, phenobut is considered a gabapentinoid. Those drugs act directly on GABA-A and GABA-B. Gabapentin does not. It's an indirect analog, and it indirectly increases brain GABA and decreases glutaminergic turns glutaminergic um, activity. So that's how it causes some CNS depression and relaxation in the brain. And you know, Darlene, this is how it's very helpful for alcohol withdrawal, right? Because that's the exact effect we're looking for. Yes, we're trying to just decrease all of those excitatory chemicals, right? Everything down. Exactly. It also reduces the release of substance P. So therein lies its analgesic effect and also reduces the release of pro-nociceptive peptides. So it acts on both neuropathic pain and nociceptive pain. Does it or does it not indirectly activate dopaminergic reward circuitry? So that's the magic bullet because we think it does. And that's why some people report that gabapentin makes them feel euphoric and intoxicated, and they either hate it or they love it. And other people think it's horrible, but it does seem to activate dopaminergic rewards for certain people, especially those with opioid use disorder. And that's the risk. This is why it it has that potential for abuse. Well, what do we do? What does gabapentin withdrawal look like? How do we treat gabapentin dependence withdrawal? Withdrawal, very similar because of its mechanism of action to alcohol and benzodiazepine. You're going to have a very similar withdrawal picture, and it can actually be quite difficult to tease that out, right, Paula? And I know you've seen it. You've probably admitted multiple patients that have come in, and I think sometimes it's not picked up quite away because we don't think people could actually be having that level of withdrawal, right? Oh, yeah, especially people who really end up escalating their use, so they they gain tolerance. And when gabapentin, I think we're talking specifically about people who are abusing gabapentin either by itself, which is a small subset of the population, or if they're uh, misusing using and abusing gabapentin in combination with opioids. And they come in and they're typically taking massive doses and their brain is just awash with it and they have tolerance to it, just like people have to high amounts of alcohol or benzodiazepines. Absolutely. It's common, like you said, you get these mixed pictures like people present and you're maybe treating them for their opiate withdrawal, but they've been also abusing gabapentin with it. We're trying to treat the opiate withdrawal, didn't disclose the gabapentin. And like we've said, a lot of Often our point of care testing, which is what most facilities initially that information you have right there isn't going to tell you that this person was on gabapentin. And so you have these mixed pictures that sometimes looks very like an alcohol or benzodiazepine withdrawal. That those people are very anxious, they they have unstable vitals and insomnia, agitation, and you treat it with benzodiazepines or a gabapentin taper. Both of those, I f- that would be, I would consider in more in an inpatient setting. Also, you can consider the use of some of our other supportive medications like the carbamazepine, 
delproic acid. What other medications have you used? I've used phenobarbital, which of course only in the inpatient setting. So had a particular person who oh, felt so bad for this poor guy. He had really struggled with opioid use disorder and worked really hard to manage that. And when he was in treatment, residential treatment for opioid use disorder, he was given gabapentin. This was one of his treatment episodes. He was given gabapentin for pain and anxiety and sleep, which we've all done before. And it's given innocently and obviously just to help folks. But he found it quite intoxicating and euphoric. And as soon as he got out of treatment, he got it prescribed and then he got his dose got increased and increased. And he ended up getting massive doses prescribed to him. And then he would also obtain extra doses um, from friends and from other sources. But he had a really tough withdrawal syndrome because he really started using extremely high doses of it. And I had admitted him on several occasions and it finally got to the point where he just didn't do very well. He didn't tolerate tapering the gabapentin. I mean, that wasn't really an option. We'd have to take a long time to do that. And he didn't do that well for some reason with benzodiazepines like lorazepam or chlorazepoxide. So I used phenobarbital to help with his withdrawal on one occasion. On the last occasion, I took care of him actually, and it worked very, very well. Now, that being said, you'll want to be familiar with phenobarbital and its pharmacokinetics and dynamics and be in an inpatient setting to do that. But it works very well because it acts on, you know, GABA B and it decreases the glutaminergic tone and everything that happens when you withdraw from gabapentin. I think that's a really good point. And I think that just shows that you can have people have severe withdrawal from this medication. And so that is something to always keep kind of in your back pocket if you have somebody just with the data that you're treating for opioid withdrawal and then their picture doesn't seem to be quite like just pure opioid withdrawal. Then sometimes let's go back and maybe get a better history. And that's where we need to use some of our send out testing, confirm that, hey, do we maybe have a gabapentinoid on board? Just the epidemiology showing us that this is a more common problem than we are typically picking up on right away. In conclusion, significant misuse among patients with substance use disorder, primarily opiate use disorder. Those we need to be really cautious about as our patients on methadone or buprenorphine maintenance. And it has adverse effects with therapeutic doses and increase of adverse effects with those super therapeutic doses. Be aware, we do need to adjust with renal function. So death is rare with gabapentin by itself, but it is increased in combination with opiates. Gabapentin potentiates opiates and vice versa. Opiates potentiate gabapentin. There's actually pretty weak evidence for off-label, just generalized pain treatment. And that's probably the most common use that we see for gabapentin. And these questions that we talk, should gabapentinoids be listed on PMD, PMs? The answer is yes, probably should be scheduled federally. I think there's, there's probably, we would both support that. That is something that we would advocate for. Is this something that should be added to our just our standard drug toxicology screens? You know, just after going over those statistics, I would say yes, because it makes me think how many times have I missed this in our patients. What do you think, Paula? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think not for everybody, but for those who are at risk. So maybe folks with opioid use disorder, and especially those with uh, pain as well. And then definitely to post-mortem toxicology so that we can understand the data. Yeah. 
More Absolutely. Clearly. And then the last, sure, we're educating our patients about the risk. I mean, we've really advocated about benzodiazepines, making sure that we are educating our patients about the risk of those. I think this is a very similar conversation that we need to have with our patients. Ask your opiate use disorder patients about their history of gabapentin use and a history of abuse. Use extreme cautions with gabapentin and opiates, especially those patients with a history of opiate use disorder and those on methadone or bupin or buprenorphine maintenance. Yeah, don't forget to just talk to your patients, just talk to them and ask them. I'm always so amazed that people can be just transparent and tell you, oh yeah, no, I don't do well with gabapentin. I've overused it in the past or, and they'll just let you know, you know, I think it's really, you don't, if you don't ask, you won't know. And the other thing I would add to that summary is treat gabapentin in high-risk patients like a high-risk drug. So do not give five refills. Do not keep prescribing without checking with the pharmacy when they filled it last if it's not on your PDMP in your state, state by state. And treat it like a higher-risk medication. Only give 28 days at a time or only give seven days at a time or 14 days at a time. And keep checking in with patients regarding the risk versus benefit benefit of the medication, is it really helping the person and does the benefit outweigh the risk? Because it really does increase their risk of death and we certainly don't want any part of that. We want to keep people safe as our first priority. So we want to treat pain, we want to be compassionate. This is not to say that we don't, but we do want to be cautious and make sure people understand the risks and that we are judicious patrons of prescribing of this medication. I love it. I couldn't say it better. I'm always just telling my students, and I'm telling my APCs, you know, even though it's not scheduled, you can treat it like a schedule two and don't give refills because that way you can monitor when this patient's refilling it and you can know if this person who's high risk, are they getting into trouble? And don't, yeah, don't let it go five months before you figure out that this person is now in trouble. Just keep a little closer eye on those high risk patients for sure. That's great advice. Right. And if you want to learn more about this topic, really this, we've taken a lot of the information, the basic information for this podcast from this talk given by uh, Dr. Seisitz, and it's available on ASAM eLearning. And it's the name of his talk is Gabapentinoids, A Wolf in Sheep's Clothing. So it was given several occasions, but on Friday, October 29th, 2021. And you can go online and register for that for free and watch that. It's just an hour long course. And I think you can actually get CMEs. So I would really recommend you, those of you who want to learn more and go dig into a little bit more of the details to go and look that PowerPoint and that presentation up and, and watch it and listen to it. All right. Thank you. Until next time. Hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com. and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from the source. As each person is unique, your advice to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on the show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.